It truly is to be a blessing for me to be here leading us through this next message in our series going through the book of Daniel. But as Braden prayed, and I'm thankful for the prayer, it's going to be a little bit tougher to hear as much as it will be to deliver, and it's because of the content that we're looking at today. It's content that speaks to the heart of what Braden's been leading us through so far in our series. It's speaking to the spirit that is over the nation of Babylon, and it's a spirit that's present in our world today. In breaking down our scripture and getting prepared for this message, I found myself delving into some very dark realities of Daniel's day. And they're realities that are one day going to come forward again in our future, in future days to come. And depending on who you talk to, many feel that those days are here or they're just around the corner. And I, for one, am in line with that thought. I've spoken in the past about the injustices that we see in the world, the addiction, the suicide, the abuse of so many children and so many adults, the failures of our government in their celebration of what is wrong and what is sinful. This is that demonic spirit of Babylon that was the law in Daniel's day, and it's becoming the law in our day. And that's a terrifyingly sober thought, were it not for the grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and his gospel. So we're picking up our discussion this morning, beginning at at Daniel chapter 3. We're going to be going all the way through verse 1 and into Daniel chapter 4 to verse 3. It's a large section of scripture, but I want to take a moment before we get into it to remind everybody of, of something that is very important for us to take note of. Daniel is not a children's story. It's not a children's story. Yes, we communicate the hard historical truths of Scripture to children in the way that they'll understand. But when we grow up, we go so much deeper. We have to go deeper. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I gave up the childish ways. We're not talking about cuddly lions anymore. For us going through this series together, the childish ways are in the past, and we're here to understand what we need to know, what God wants us to know from an adult perspective, and then we, pl- we apply that truth to our lives. So we have another long section of scripture that we're going to take in three sections. And each one of these sections has a takeaway that we're going to need to put in our heart and we're going to need to consider. In the context verse that I feel summarizes everything that we're going to look at this morning, it's taken from Matthew chapter 24, verse 13, and it'll be behind me here. It says, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. The one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now, this is a verse that we're going to come back to when we close. But what we're going to see over the course of our text is that we will see what it takes. We'll see what it looks like. And we're going to see what's possible when Christians stand firm. So starting in Daniel chapter 3, the first section that we're going to look at is verses 1 through 7. And they read as follows. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. 60 cubits high and six cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. 
He summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that the King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, must have been a crazy time to be walking around, all the nations and peoples of every language. Now hear this church, a multinational kingdom with many languages. Sound like any familiar countries you know? They fell down and they worshiped the image of gold the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So what do we have here? We have a statue that's 60 cubits high and six cubits wide. In putting that into metric terms, we might understand this statue's 90 feet tall, almost 90 feet, and it's about 10 feet wide. It's absolutely massive, and if we're going to understand why Nebuchadnezzar created this statue, we actually have to backtrack a little bit to look at and to to reflect on what we learned in Daniel chapter 2. Because it's Daniel chapter 2 that gives us insight into why Nebuchadnezzar did this. The king had a dream that no man could interpret, no no astrologer, nor any of his wise men. They asked the king, they say, king, tell us what your dream was and we'll interpret it for you. But the king, you know, say what you want about him, he does have some intelligence. He knows the motives that these wise men or so-called astrologers, he knows why they're coming forward and asking him this, because they're brown nosers. And he knows what their intentions are. The king is used to hearing everything that he wants to hear, and that's not what he's interested in. They ask the king, tell me your dream and we'll interpret it. Daniel, the man of God, comes forward and he says, my God will not only reveal what your dream was, he'll reveal the interpretation. And he speaks of four kingdoms, including his own represented as a gold head at the top of a statue. And he tells him what their future is going to hold, but he also speaks of a a fifth kingdom, a future kingdom. It's God's eternal kingdom that will have no end. And when he hears this, this is where the king starts to have a problem. You see, the king honors Daniel because he knows that Daniel just did the impossible. He knows that what Daniel said was the truth because Daniel's not telling him a thought that popped into his mind. You think about it for a second. I might get, you know, if if a baseball legend is proven to be a legend when he bats three out of 10 times, 300, I might get two out of the 10 thoughts that went through your mind in the run of a day. That's not what Daniel's doing here. Daniel reveals or lays out the king's entire dream. And, if, and, and, and I'll say this, if I was around in Daniel's day, I would, I'm certain that the adult pamper industry was thriving because 
Because if I was to witness what Daniel was witnessing in his friends in those days, I just don't know if I could trust how my body would respond. Um, So, (laughs) humor in this. Um, Why is the king not happy? Why is he not happy? It's because he's being told that his kingdom's going to have an end and that there are going to be other kingdoms that are going to come after him who will rule the lands that were once his. And that's not what he wants to hear. And that's certainly not what the people around him have the guts to tell him. This king is not like Solomon. He's not like the wise King Solomon who knew what the end of all his pursuits were going to be. The king knew that everything was temporary. And Solomon lamented about this in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 when he spoke about the kinds of people that were going to come after him who would own and have stewardship of everything he worked hard for. For anyone here who's done up a will, do you ever think about that? How wise will those who receive what I've been blessed by God to receive, how wise will they be with it? Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 2, and who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish, yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This isn't what Nebuchadnezzar's thinking. He actually doubles down and he replaces the statue of his dream with a statue that is gold from top to bottom. Nothing weaker is coming after him. And it's so unbelievable because, again, Daniel did what was impossible. And this king stands in the face of the creator and he says, no way, not happening. And anyone who doesn't bow down to my image, who doesn't agree with my ideology and the direction I'm taking this kingdom, you're going to be put to death. It's going to cost you your life. It's insanity to me. But it's also antichrist talk. It's antichrist language. This is how people who are against God, against the gospel, against his word, this is what they sound like. So what is our takeaway? You know, there's that saying about history that it's always important to remember what happened in the past so that we can work and make efforts to ensure it doesn't happen again, that we don't make the same mistakes. So this text serves as a warning for us, and specifically in the area of who or what is on the throne of your heart. I want all the listeners to hear this, that the king is not interested in hearing anything that he doesn't want to hear, and he's deceived. And who's deceiving him? It's Satan. It's the, this fallen angel masquerading around as light who's given him a delusion that everything could be his, Everything that he owns will be his forever, and he can have more. And the question I have is, is there there anybody in the world that sounds like that today? Is there anybody in history past, even recent history, that has sounded like that? A famous North Korean defector and activist, she's an activist now, Yaomi Park, she spoke of scientists in North Korea today whose sole job was to figure out how they can keep the leader... Kim Jong-un, they call him the leader. It's their job in North Korea to figure out how to keep him alive forever. That's their job. He wants to outlive everyone. He wants to own everything so that he will be God. That's a satanic motive. That is Satan's motive. 
And again, it's antichrist language lived out and spoken through the heart of men. Thinking about this fool and the king in our text, does it scare you at all? People like that scare me. But the other question is, can you relate to someone like that? No? Yes? Yes? Maybe some people are like, wait a minute, why is the finger being pointed at me here? I mean, I don't own a kingdom. I don't own, maybe you don't own a car or a house. Maybe you don't own or rule over anything. I know I don't own a kingdom, and I certainly haven't tried to take anyone's life, so why would fingers be pointed at me? I want to share an interesting story of uh, the first time I found myself on a mission tour in New York City. A friend of mine, Nancy, we were, we were down in front of uh, uh, MSG, Madison Square Garden, and we were praying for people, we're handing out food, and we encountered this man who was in tears. He was a broken man. And he shared with us his crippling addiction to pornography. And through tears, he was telling us about all of it, all of what that addiction had cost him in his life. And it was going to cost him his relationship, this woman he loved. And we were praying for him. But I remember when we were done praying and when we walked away and the dialogue we had with him after we were done praying, we were left with this impression that I don't know if he really wants to let that go. I don't know if he can let it go just based on what he was saying and what had him enslaved. It's the same kind of problem that the Israelites had when God called them out of Egypt. As soon as testing came, as soon as trials came, they longed to be back in a nation that had them enslaved. Fast forward, we remember the time Jesus met the rich man in Mark chapter 10, verse 7, Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. This rich man comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do? And Jesus says, sell all your wealth, give to the poor, think of someone else other than yourself. And the man walks away from Jesus broken and in tears because he knew that the ask was not something he could do or he wanted to do. He had no ability to, to discern the temporal from the eternal that was standing right in front of him. So again, what about you? And what about us? Because it's not about what we own. It's about who owns us or what owns us. It's about your heart. And God's living word is the mirror that reflects what is on the throne of that heart and how healthy that heart is. And this is just the first seven verses. That's it. Like Braden talked about the heaviness. I feel it when I read sections of scripture like that. We're getting into the, section, the second section now, and it's a larger section. We're looking at verses 8 through 23, and it reads like this. <clears throat> at this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They worship, they neither serve your God nor worship the image of gold you've set up. 
Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, it, if, you are, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I've made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into a blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But I love this. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. So here we are, the object of idolatry is made, the command to worship a man-made inanimate object is given, and anyone rejecting this command is going to be killed, and it's not long before a, conspir a conspiracy is afoot. <clears throat> and who's behind the conspiracy? It's the same worthless astrologers who said the king's dream ask was impossible. Now you have to imagine, they probably realize that the king doesn't think of them the same way that he once thought especially after everything Daniel's done. They've most certainly lost their influence in the king's court, so they result to eliminating the competition. In thinking forward in time, in another section of the New Testament, it, the same thing plays itself out in this place called Ephesus, where the leaders of Ephesus are enraged at losing their, their income in the idol-making, the, the idol objects that they were making of the god Artemis. Same thing plays out, and they're filled with rage. They're not interested in what God has to say. They're interested in the money they're making because their appetites are for their stomach, and they're sin-filled. The king is demanding these men here in our text to break two of the living God's commands, and specifically the first two, that there will be no other gods before our God, and you are to make no, or you're not to make any graven images, no false idols, no images, period. I'm a living God, not manifested in something made by man. You don't need to make an object that looks like me. I am. And the response to Hananiah, Mishai, and Azariah is that the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand, but even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. So before Jesus even has to say it, 
these men are living out what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, when he said, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. So Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, as I like to refer them by their Hebrew names, their God-given names, not their pagan names that the king gave them. They have a chance to save their lives, but their perspective is different than the current perspective of the culture they're in. And that changes all the time. The scene must have been super intense because the king's beside himself. And I like how Daniel describes it. In verse 13, he says, the king is filled with rage. And then in verse 19, he says, the king's attitudes now change towards them. So it's like this guy has levels to his rage. Like when someone says they're enraged, I can't figure how they can go higher. But this guy does. A massive furnace is heated seven times hotter as if it could match the heat of the king's fury. And I want to stop here for a moment because I want to take a second to reflect on the reality that this may not have been the first time people were thrown into this furnace. Like the Jews of the Nazis' day, they were probably facing the question of what do we do with these people that we don't want around, who won't conform or submit? What are we to do with them? This king has enslaved so many people over the course of his conquests, and they're struggling, they're probably struggling with what they're going to do with those they deem unworthy to live. And the question I have again is, is there anyone in the world today who talks like that? Speaking of the World Economic Forum, the WEF, in a summit that they recently had in Davos, Switzerland, a global economist and a real estate mogul named Yuri Uriya, he spoke to world leaders and elites People who refer themselves to the elites are those special people who have so much wealth that they are so much worth and so much more valuable than anyone else. This global economist and real estate guy is at a World Economic Forum Summit in front of world leaders and elites, and he speaks about a new class system that they're moving away from. You see, the class system of the Western world is that of the upper, middle, and lower class. That's what we're familiar with. But he is speaking about a class system that now they are moving into that is defined by what they call the upper and underclass. There's only two. But there is a third class that he refers to as the irrelevant. He says, there is now, we are now at a stage in our history where we have upper and under, but there's also the irrelevant the irrelevant class. And for me, when I think about that, I'm thinking to myself, what qualifies you to be irrelevant? Because what he also said is that it will be far better for people to be a part of the underclass than it would be to be irrelevant. What's going to happen to those people who are deemed irrelevant? That is antichrist talk, antichrist language spoken on a world stage. Coming back to the text, our brothers are facing immediate death in the form of a furnace, and they're unfazed. They confidently stand in faith, and we need to remember this as well, church, a lot of things to remember. These men had lived a life of faith, walking in a a land that was promised to them that they were stolen from. 
because of the disobedience of Israel. And just because they're taken and they're propagandized in a pagan culture, it doesn't mean that what they know is true is no longer true. It doesn't mean what they believe that they're going to throw it away and that they're going to change. Not at all. Not at all, because they knew that the spirit at work in the world of Babylon was not as great as the spirit of God who was theirs and is present in the world and all of creation. Amen? But they also had some helpers. You see, the prophet Jeremiah, he lived at the time of Daniel and these men. The prophet Jeremiah was alive. And before they went into captivity, they would have heard Jeremiah's word foretelling of their exile to this nation. He spoke of this in Jeremiah chapter 29. And these men also would have heard the incredibly encouraging words that Jeremiah spoke to that nation in verse chapter 42, verses 11 through 12, when he said, Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you now fear. Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord, for I am with you and will save you and deliver you from his hands. I will show you compassion so that he he will have compassion on you and restore you to your land. They knew this. This was comfort to them. They didn't know how long they were going to be in exile, but they had the words of Jeremiah. They had the prophecy, the prophetic words of Isaiah. They knew what Daniel was doing. Their faith was firm, knowing that God was in control. They had a relationship with a living God whose objectives are eternal. They're not temporary. And the eternal found in Christ, man, that gives you strength to stand. So what is the takeaway for us in this section of Scripture? What do we need to consider? There's two things we need to consider. And I'll pose them both in the form of a question. Jeopardy. The first is, are you ready for the end times? Everything when it comes to Bible prophecy is proven true. They can't discredit it. And there is prophecy that is laid out in Scripture talking about what a future time is going to look like. And I'm telling you, it's going to be true. So to know that and to believe that is to know there will be a time where the Lord is coming back and he's going to bring an end to what is happening here. Are you ready? Daniel spoke of five kingdoms prophesied in chapter 2, and they're foretelling not just of Christ's returning kingdom, but they also speak of the Antichrist kingdom, this Satan-filled man's kingdom, and his reign that is going to happen before Christ comes back. And like I said, there are many who believe that we are at the doorstep of this time. We are closer and closer to Antichrist's coming and the terror that he's going to bring on the earth. Everything witnessed during the Babylonian time in the two nations that came after Babylon, the Medo-Persian nation and the Greek nation, all of those things are going to happen, but it's going to be way worse because it's going to be on a global scale. It's going to be done globally. And the influence and the controller behind it is Satan. So it's not going to be a good time to be left behind, and it's certainly not going to be a good time to be deemed irrelevant And I want you to notice how I didn't include that fourth kingdom. Because Daniel does speak about four kingdoms. Braden spoke about it last week. That kingdom of Rome. I mean, history professors 
We'll most all acknowledge that in the mid-1500s, Rome was done as a nation. But that doesn't mean that the shadow of Rome still doesn't exist. The shadow of Rome does exist. Daniel prophesied in his vision of what the king saw of clay feet with ten toes. And when you fast forward to the prophecy that Jesus gave John... When he was in exile on Patmos, he spoke of a beast with ten horns. The same prophecy spoken at two different times with the same outcome. It speaks of a final worldly empire that's going to present itself. And there are many in Europe today who are working and promoting their connection and their heritage, their heritage to the ancient Rome Empire. I spoke about the World Economic Forum, but I could also speak about the European Union. That is the European Union's objective, but I can't go into depth on it right now because that's a message for another time. What I do want to offer is a few examples of prophecies that have been fulfilled in our time, as well as a few thoughts for us to consider so that we can stand firm and so that we can have faith and so that we will be ready. Both Ezekiel and Jeremiah foretold over 2,500 years ago that Israel would be a nation again one day. And that prophecy was fulfilled in 1948 after World War II when the the Jewish leader called all Jews home. They were called to Israel and it was recognized as a nation. Jesus spoke of all the signs, troubling signs and events that were going to happen in the world that would speak about his time coming back being closer. All these cataclysmic events that were going to happen. Earthquakes and storms and all this stuff. Every time I turn the TV on, I'm seeing events happen at never recorded times in history. The prophecy of the sixth angel in Revelation 16 verse 12, there were angels that had jobs to do. And in Revelation 16 verse 12, this angel was to pour out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was going to dry up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. An invading army coming from the east that is hell-bent on destroying Israel. What's happening with the Euphrates River right now? It's drying up. It's almost gone. A government report from the Iraqi Ministry of Water Resources in 2021 warned that the rivers could run dry by 2040. And I'm telling you, that's been expedited now because of the declines in the water levels that they're seeing. It almost doesn't exist. And if you want to see this, I would encourage you, Google it. Google the Euphrates River from 20 years ago compared to today, and you're going to see something scary And something incredible, because where's the water going? God said it was going to evaporate. And we need to ask ourselves, is this revelation prophecy being fulfilled in our time, or is it a precursor to it? Outlined in a book that Mark Hitchcock and Jeff Kinley wrote called Global Reset, the agenda of the World Economic Forum, coming back to them again, it's predicated on global planetary unity between nations, All nations on the globe coming together and being unified, but for that to happen, religion can't exist. There is no room for a religious worldview. That freedom's going to be taken away. It's a group that prides itself in its leader, Klaus Schwab. They pride themselves on their ability to infiltrate and convert governments to their ideology. I am not talking crazy talk. You can go on YouTube and listen to this man's mouth word for word. 
and it's happening on the world stage today. And he prides himself on China being a model nation. And he compliments Canada on their adoption of their ideology. Canada is named as a country that he takes pride in. It's a scary time. The world is moving fast in this direction. Globalization will be the reality, and Satan is the driver of it. But what I'm not saying is I know when Christ comes back. I'm not saying that. I don't know when Christ comes back. Nobody does. He just gives us signs to help us understand and to be ready. I prefer to like what Billy Graham said. I love what Billy Graham said. When he was asked as whether or not Christ's return was imminent, he said, I don't know. It looks like it is. It feels like it is. But that's not my concern. My concern is on one's readiness to meet Christ when he comes. That's what his priority was. Are you, listener, ready for the end? And this leads me into that second question. Are you ready to meet Jesus? This is that second thing we need to be ready for. And think about it for a moment. The door's open at the back of the church right now. If Jesus was to come through, would you be ready to, <clears throat> would you be ready to see him? Would you, would you jump up with excitement and run to him and fall at his knees and hold him and not let him go? Like, like one of his followers did when he was resurrected and he said, it's not my time, it hasn't come yet. Give me a minute. I don't know if I would be able to contain myself. Or would you be sitting here with anxious thoughts? Would your mind go elsewhere? And would you be thinking of things, oh man, I gotta do this. Jesus, I'll be right there. There's no time for that. John the Baptist said, and I'm sure he yelled it, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And we need to yell that. I apologize, my voice is raised. I'm excited. Repent, the kingdom of God is near. God is so close, church. Can you feel him? Brayden spoke about that. You can see God in all his creation. He is near. Do you feel in your heart right now a pulling? Does your stomach nodded? Is your throat nodded and saying, I need to be released? Untie me. Is the Holy Spirit leaning on you saying, it's time. Come to Jesus. Jesus spoke about this so many times and he used parables. He said, don't turn back for anything. Be ready. The men of our text, they weren't looking back. They were looking forward and they did so without fear. They lived and served in captivity, but not in service to their captors. They glorified God in the life they lived for him. And when his kingdom drew near, they were ready to meet with Jesus and to be with him. And did they ever meet him? Coming to the last section that we're looking at today. We're looking at verses 24 all the way to chapter 4, verses 1 and 3. It says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar, he leaped to his feet in amazement, and he asked his advisors, these people that he can't trust, didn't you see what I saw? Weren't there three men that were tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, your majesty. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the sun like a son of the gods. 
He's still not ready to let go of his gods, but he says, this guy looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps, prefects, governors, royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that, their, that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was their, the hair on their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted him and and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I decree the people of any nation or language who who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be cut into pieces and their houses turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. Imagine that today. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And then we get into chapter 4, and Daniel writes in these first introductory verses, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. When I got to this part of my sermon prep, my mind was reflecting on a place in history or a time in history that I could not understand why. When I thought about this section of scripture, my mind is going to this place, and I'm like, why are you going there? It doesn't make any sense. And then Braden led us through the first message in our series and the three types of people that exist when the spirit of Babylon rises up in a nation. Do you remember those three people Braden spoke about? Do you remember the conformer? The guy who, who is like a chameleon, and he just wants to be a part of what's happening. You know, what's the culture? I want to I be a part of it. He's a flag in the wind. And then you have the complainer. <clears throat> and that's me. I'm sorry. I know that there's a transition in my life I need to make. But I don't want to be that. Because the complainer, he doesn't agree with what's happening in, in, in the world. And we shouldn't either. But we can't just complain about it. Because you ha- there, there's, an, there's an option, and it's the committer, the one who commits to Jesus Christ. And when I thought about that, I listened to the sermons again, and it, it hit me. It, this is when it made sense that this time and place in history that my mind was going to, it, it, it became clear. I understood it. So behind me, we have an image that may be familiar to some people. If I can get that image up, if we don't have an image, that's Okay. There is no image? Okay, that's all right, but it's an image of the Prime Minister of Great Britain from the 1930s. His name was Neville Chamberlain, and I don't want to show anyone's age. If you saw the image, it'd be like, are you trying to tell me how old I am? No. (laughs) Again, we want to learn from history. But Neville Chamberlain stood on an airstrip holding a document that he waved with pride because he believed this document was going to secure peace for their time. 
And the document was named the Munich Agreement. And it was signed in 1938 by Germany, Italy, Great Britain, and France in an effort to appease Nazi Germany, an effort to appease Hitler and to avoid world war. But what was the mistake of these nations? You see, they thought by conforming and by complaining, maybe by reasoning with Hitler, he would give up his megalomaniac ideology that he was God and that he was going to rule the world. And when it comes to evil, you can't reason with that. You can't reason with people like that. You can't entertain it, and you, can't, you certainly can't indulge it. Because people like that are hell-bent. They're hell-bent. And they should have known what they were dealing with because all the reports coming out of Germany in 1936 in the lead-up to the Olympic Games in Berlin, they knew what was happening there. And people like the Hitlers of the world, the Nebuchadnezzars of the world, this isn't how you are to approach them. When we're in times like this and when we're living in kingdoms like this, we need to be committed to Jesus Christ. Because it's in commitment to Jesus and his eternal gospel and the eternal perspective that we see real change happen. That's what Hanny, Mushi, and Ozzy did, if I was to just go children. They experienced the miracle of God's power to save. They're walking and they're praising in the fire with the Son of Man. Who can ever say that God does not have a sense of humor and that he doesn't know how to have fun? In a fire so hot that it burns to death the soldiers, the best of the king's men, who threw them in, these men are standing with Jesus, and it's like a first-hand account of what's going to happen when the final kingdom is established, God's final kingdom. There will be those who stand with Jesus, who dance and celebrate eternally, and then there will be a fire for the rest. Then the king calls out, and he says, come out. And they come out completely unharmed, their body, their clothes, their hair, everything's intact. They don't even smell like smoke. The king rewards them and he promotes them, but that's not what their motivation was. They're not serving this king because they want status and because they want name recognition. Their relationship is with God and the promise of salvation that's found only in him. And that's what their priority was. And for every believer who draws close to God, that becomes your priority as well. It's supernatural. I can tell you that when I lived like a non-believer, I thought horrible things. I spoke horrible things. And sometimes I did horrible things. And when Christ came into my life, I did none of it. My mom used to call the pastor of my church at the time when I was 20, 19 and 20, and she said, what happened to my son? What did you do to him? He's changed and I don't understand it. And I, with tears, I cried with my mom and I said, mom, are you, are you not happy? Can't you see that God is real? You were afraid. My mom was afraid of me. She fled an abusive relationship just to be afraid of her son. And that breaks my heart. But Jesus brought about that change, and I'm pretty sure my mom might not even remember that. The king is blown away, like so many are, when Christ changes a life. 
And he makes a profession that you might need to make today. He says, no other God can save the way our God saves. No other God. His kingdom endures forever. This is a megalomaniac's confession over 2,500 years ago. And there's going to be a time where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess whether they want to or not that there is no other God like our Jesus and he is Lord. As the jailer cried out to Paul in the book of Acts, he says, what must I do to be saved, Paul? Maybe you need to ask that question. Your heart wants it. And Lori, you'll like this. Like Andy Dufresne from the movie Shawshank Redemption. I can't get through one without a plug. Like that movie, when Andy was thinking of his friend Red and this journey he was on, he said, Red, you've come this far. Maybe you're willing to go a little further. Maybe you know you need to repent of your sin. I would encourage you to do so and go a little further and commit and trust your life to Jesus because he will look after your life in this world. You will stand and then he'll look after your life in the next eternally. So as we close this time out, I said it would be a little longer, but man, it went by so quick. We're coming back to the context verse we started with in Matthew chapter 24, verse 13, that said, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. To stand firm to the end, church, is to know that God is with you today. He dwells inside of you through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, and he's absolutely at work in our time and in our culture all over the world, not just in Canada. Like the men in chapter 3 in our look at history, the second they were in the fire, Jesus was there. Jesus didn't come down in a flash of lightning. A spaceship didn't have to drop him off. Nobody had to tell the soldiers, wait a minute, God's coming. He's almost here, hold on. None of that had to happen. The second they were there, God was there. His omniscience, his omnipotent, and his omnipresent power was manifested And he was there before the fire even started. And he will be there for you when your time comes. Whether you expect it or not, he will be there to meet you. He'll be there to embrace you. And when I look at the world today, and I think about what Jesus has in store, it's a super encouraging thought that fills my heart and has me believing that I could stand. Daniel summarizes everything that's happening in the first first few verses of chapter 4. Daniel considered it a blessing to minister to the worldly leader of his day. (sighs) Got to breathe on that one. It needs to be our blessing because we're dealing with leaders and people who don't know any better because they haven't experienced the saving grace of the gospel. So we need to be praying for the leaders of our country. We need to be praying for the leaders of other countries that they would have a revelation of Jesus Christ so powerful that it changes everything that they had in store, all their plans, and they adopt new objectives. Second Peter says that the patience of the Lord equals salvation. And if we can contribute to more patience, that's our mission. To share of God's eternal goodness and his eternal greatness, that's the blessing of, our, of the Harbor Church, and it's the blessing of a believer in the world they engage with. So if you need to talk, we're here to meet with you. We're here to walk this life with you. 
If you're listening online, the offer is the same. Call the church. You will get a response. If you listen to the message online, tag a note in it. Put a message on it, and we'll get back to you. We will, because we know how important this is. Like Doc said to Marty in Back to the Future, it's all about our future. Your future's at stake, and it truly is, my friend. It truly is.